if there was anyone for whom a fanfare would be appropriate, it would be our main guest this evening, Anne Summers. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to give just a, a little... rowdy crowd, huh? <laughs> a rowdy crowd, yes. We're going to, we're going to give you a, just a little introduction, if that's all right, Anne. Anne was born in Deniliquin, New South Wales, but grew up in Adelaide. She attended Cabra Convent in the University of Adelaide before moving to Sydney, where she became active in the women's movement, obtained a PhD, and began her writing career. In 1974, she and a couple of friends founded the first women's refuge in Australia, Elsie, in... <laughs> In, in Wentworth Street, Glebe, if I'm not, mista I'm not mistaken. Um, in 1975, after she had published this extraordinary book here, um, Damned Horse... It was a bit thinner back then. Uh, sorry? It was a bit thinner back then. Yes, yeah, so it seems to have quite a long, quite long introduction growing. in Keeps there. Keeps growing. Uh, uh, <laughs> after the publication of Damned Horse and God's Police, she joined the National Times as a feature writer, where she won a Walkley Award. In 1979, she was appointed the political correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, and in 1983, she took on the role as head of the Office of the Status of Women in the Hawke Labor government. The list of Anne's achievements continues. She went to the US as the head of Fairfax Press's Bureau in New York, then she organized the purchase of MS Magazine and then became its editor. After that, she returned to Australia and became an advisor to Paul Keating, later took on the role as chair of Greenpeace International and launched her own magazine in conjunction with doing interviews that in many ways are not so different from the ones that we're seeing here tonight. In the spaces between, she managed to write eight books. Two of the autobiographies, the publication of the latter, Unfettered and Alive, is the excuse for this evening's event. <laughs> You've all, welcome her again. Welcome Thank her to... <laughs> It's fabulous to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, look, this is just such a fascinating book, uh, and not simply because of the 40 or so years of your life that it covers, uh, because they've been so interested, but also because you've managed to imbue the story with, what with such a strong narrative drive. I wonder if we might jump into, right into what, for me, was one of the most interesting passages of it, which is the, the time when you became the editor of MS Magazine in New York and, and what happened after that. Prior to that How time... we got... Sorry, well, exactly, yes, you know, <laughs> but we, but, you know, I've got a few, few places we'd like to go, but okay. prior to this time, you'd been heading up the Office of the Status of Women, but you had tired of being a bureaucrat and made the move to New York to take on the position of North American manager for Fairfax. How did all this unfold? Well, uh, it took me two chapters of the book to tell the story of, of uh, Ms. <laughs> and uh, Sassy magazines. Um, so I'll try and try and give you a very abbreviated um, uh, version of it. I was in New York, as, as Stephen said, working for Fairfax, uh, running the, the North American Bureau. Also, I was writing for the Financial Review and the National Times. And uh, um, I, I have to say that I was very disappointed. I, you know, it was my, be my dream to go to New York and have a job and actually be able to afford to live there and. Uh, the, I'd been there many times before and I'd always wanted to stay but I was always too scared because I didn't think I could survive without a job. Now I was there with a job and it wasn't all that I thought it would be and I was wondering whether or not I should stay, whether or not I should go back to, to Sydney. And uh, Sandra Yates, who some of you may know, who's a Brisbane girl, um, she came over to New York from uh, Sydney and she had been working for Fairfax in the magazine division. I was in the newspaper division. And she had the, um, the brief from the Fairfax board to come and start a teenage girls' magazine in New York based on Dolly. Dolly, which is the most phenomenally successful magazine here. And she had identified a gap in the U.S. A very, very you know, visionary thing to do. Identified this gap in the U.S. market um, that there was nothing like Dolly, so she, she, they sent her over here to, over there to, to do it, and so she came up with the idea of starting a magazine called Sassy, and I was in my capacity as running the bureau, was helping her find premises and all the things you have to do to start a magazine, and in the course of that, she took me to lunch one day at um, Cafe Cafe Erdo Trois on West 43rd Street, and she said, uh, I've just found out that Ms. Magazine, the legendary magazine started by Gloria Steinem in 1972, I've just found out that Ms. is for sale and we're going to buy it. 
and we did. We got Fairfax to buy it um, <laughs> and, um, and made me editor. And you ended up buying it as well. We did. Well, it's a, it's a very complicated story, um, but the short, the short version is, and you'll have to just fill in the gaps, we had, Fairfax bought the magazine, we'd had it, I think, for about four or five months, when young Warwick Fairfax came along and with his bid to take the company private, then the stock market crashed, everything fell over. Uh, they decided to sell all of their overseas properties, including Mears and Sassy. So we know we'd, we'd been in this situation for about five months. We'd been trying to tell New York how incredible Fairfax was and they could trust us to take over Mears and they should support our teenage girls magazine Sassy. Suddenly, <clears throat> so. Um, we were up for sale. So Sandra managed to negotiate with Fairfax and a limited option for us to buy them. So we were given 14 weeks, we sorry, yeah, four, four weeks, four weeks to um, raise the $20 million <laughs> needed to, to buy the magazines, which basically was to pay back Fairfax for what they'd already uh, put in and give us a bit of operating capital. And we did it. We did it. it and we both, it, we both went out and we bought ourselves these amazing suits. <laughs> um, hers was Valentino, mine was Anne Klein. Uh, because she said to me, Sandra said to me, people don't lend money to people who look like they need it. <laughs> so we had to look like a million dollars. In fact, we had to look like $20 million. And she said to me, um, because I couldn't believe how much I spent on this suit. I didn't know you could spend that much money on a suit uh, back then, but um, I soon learned. Um, she said to me, we're either going to... She always used to call me doctor, um, because I have this doctorate. And she always said to me, doctor, we're going to be the... We're going to do this deal, we're going to raise this money and do this deal, or we're going to be the best-dressed bag ladies in New York. <laughs> And we sort of ended up doing both. <laughs> because we did do the deal, but um, we had only had uh, owned the magazines for a very, very short time when the religious right in America um, decided they didn't like Sassy. They thought it was undermining the morals of teenage girls of America, and they organised a boycott against us. Because, well, basically what they said was that you were promoting contraception, weren't, they, weren't you? And you were... The, in Sassy, there was... Well, at the time, um, the United States had the highest teenage pregnancy rate in the world, and we um, took the view um, that girls should have information. We weren't encouraging young girls to have sex. I mean, the readers of, of Sassy were young teens. Uh, we weren't encouraging them to have sex. All we were saying to them was, when you're ready, make sure you're protected. And some people saw that as encouraging girls to have sex. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, the sort of frankness that was just bread and butter for, for Dolly magazine, in which Australian audiences were completely used to and wouldn't bat an eyelid about, uh, was seen as very provocative in the United States. So they campaigned, they wrote camp letters to advertisers. Yeah, they led us to advertisers. I mean, we were just... I was staggered. We were both staggered at how few letters it took for major advertisers to cancel. I mean, nobody got more than about 200 letters. And we had major companies like Revlon. Um, we, had, we had six of our top six advertisers cancel in one day, and we lost $25 million worth of revenue in one day, which basically was... I mean, we staggered on for about another year, but it was a, a very, very um, heartbreaking story. As I say, it takes me two chapters in the book to tell it, so that's, this is just the, the headline version. Which, I mean, to people who don't live in the US, the, the, kind of the, the power of the religious right in that, in that country is just phenomenal, isn't it? And, it still and, is. I mean, and, the, and why is that? I mean, we're in the 21st century. Surely this thing should have changed. Um, well, America is a very strange place, should we put it that way? I mean, it's, it's um, the religious roots of its foundation, you know, the Puritans, you know, who came over from England to, you know, escape religious persecution and who, you know, established a certain type of a sensibility. 
Um, and that, that view, no, so America is a very religious place in, in ways that, it, you know, we in Australia, which is a fairly pagan country, um, we, you know, we just don't have the same religious um, sensibility that even, even, I know there's a lot of re religious people in Queensland, I know you have lots of, um, <laughs> lots of, um, how do I put this, you know, you evangelicals of your own. <laughs> But I think they'd be struggling to keep up with the American evangelicals when it comes to... I mean, for example, when the American evangelicals at the moment are Donald Trump's biggest base. Yeah. And they tolerate the sort of behaviour that he has exhibited in terms of pussy-grabbing, etc., um, that you would think Christians would be appalled by. But they're, they're willing to accept that because they believe he's going to get rid of abortion. So that's the trade-off. And they'll, they'll cop anything to get rid of abortion. I mean, Mike Pence, the vice president, who is the most terrifying person in public office in the United States, in, in my opinion, he is on the record, record as saying that he does believe that abortion will be illegal in America in his time. And he, of course, is doing everything he can to ensure that that happens. So these people are just fanatical about trying to uh, impose on women compulsory pregnancy, barefoot and pregnant, handmaid's tale, you know the story. It's, it's, it's real and it's frightening. And they've now got the Supreme Court on side. Well. Exactly. Look, we might come back to America a little bit later on. I mean, one of the things that, that um, I found most remarkable about this book and about Ducks on a Pond, your earlier autobiography, is this kind of continual reinvention of yourself. You go from one place to another place to another place. But even for someone with your capacity for that, it seems to me that the defeat of MS Magazine and Sassy must have been a devastating blow. And I kind of just wonder how you found the resilience in yourself. Because the next thing we find you doing is that you're, you're an advisor to Paul Keating back, mm. here, back here in Australia. So how did you manage to make that, that, that step? He asked me. <laughs> it was, I mean, the, the, losing the two magazines, um, and I, you know, I describe this fairly frankly. I mean, it was, it was devastating. I mean, I felt um, that I was a tremendous failure. I felt that I'd let down the readers of Ms. I felt that, you know, because we had promised to save the magazine because it was, it was about to close. It was um, when, when, when Fairfax bought it, the magazine was so indebted it would, you know, wasn't going to last another, you know, more than a couple of weeks. And we really did think we could save it. And, and rebuild it and make it uh, profitable as well as successful and remain a feminist magazine. And I still think, had we had the time, we could have done that, but, but it didn't work out that way. But I felt, um, and Sandra, of course, you know, she was very uh, upset that, um, you know, her baby, Sassy, the magazine that she had created, and it was the most successful magazine you could possibly imagine. It was the most successful magazine launch in America for something like since Elle, which had been about six or seven years before. And it was just hot, really hot magazine until the guts was ripped out of it by the, the religious right. So, you know, she lost the magazine. She left, was forced to leave the company by the banks. I had to stay on and, and I had to take over Sassy as well as Ms. And so when it all collapsed and I was eventually fired by the new owner, um, I was devastated and it was, it, it took, I mean, I did, did it, take, it took me a long time to get over it. And there was actually, um, this happened in 1989, I was fired. I didn't go to work for Keating until 92, so there was... Oh, so there's quite a few, quite, few, quite, quite a, a time few in between. years in between. And in, in that time, I, de I decided to stay in New York and to try and rebuild myself, and I wanted to try and build, build a writing career for myself in the United States. And I was starting to do that when I got the call from Keating's, or initially from, from Don Watson in Keating's office, saying, you know, would you come back and help? And I said, well, he's going to have to ask me. And... Uh, he did, he called me in the end. And um, you know, one of the issues for me, about is it, I had this kind of American sensibility, if the leader if, if of your country asks you to serve, you cannot say no. Yeah. So there was no, no way I was going to say no. 
uh, once I knew for sure that he that was he was real, he wanted me. And it wasn't just some idea of his, you know, of staff that they were imposing on him. Uh, but I also knew that by coming back here, it was initially meant to just be for three months, but it turned into 11 months because I stayed until the 93 election. Uh, that I was probably jeopardising all of the you know, embryonic writing career that I had built up in New York, and, and in fact I did, I blew that up. But um, you know, I didn't mind because uh, once Keating won the election, I was so excited and I thought, you know, the way this country was going to be transformed was going to be so fantastic that I wanted to be part of it. So I decided to move back here. But uh, when, you, when you were hired by Keating um, the, and by his staff, the problem was that they thought They've, all the figures that they'd been doing, all the research they'd shown was that Keating was not attractive to women, that, that, and that you needed to up that mm -hmm. in order for him to win the 1983 mm -hmm. election. You needed to, get that, needed to get that support base to mm -hmm. increase. So how did, you, how did you go about that? Well, it really wasn't that hard. I mean, it's, not, it's just a bit, one of the things about politics and women in politics is a subject which has always fascinated me. And incidentally, I'm going to be giving a speech at the National Press Club next Wednesday on the subject of women's political representation. It's going to be televised if you want to watch it. Um, but I mean, it's this, this subject about women in, in, in Australia, women in Australian politics, has been one of my you know, lifelong, I won't say obsessions, but um, you know, study, areas of study. And it's just always, um, I don't know, puzzled me um, why the political system has been so contemptuous towards women. And when I went, went to the office and I said to them, you know, they said, well, this, Paul's got a problem with women. I said, well, what does the research say? Well, they hadn't done any. So they said, oh, they don't, women don't like him because of, it, what he, of, of, it, of the way he talks in question time. I said, well, it's interesting. I said, most of the women I know really admire the way he talks in question time. They love the, you know, shiver looking for a spine to run up and, you know, <laughs> flogging you with a damp lettuce and, you know, I'm going to do you slowly, you know, that sort of thing. Most women I know thought that was fabulous. So, so I said to them, we have to do research. So we, we commissioned um, an Australia-wide um, qualitative research uh, survey known as focus groups, and we did focus groups all around the country. And um, the, 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 the results of those focus groups, asking women what they, what, how their lives could be better in areas that the government could, could influence or affect, um, if, if, if the government did certain things. And the, the results of that research were just absolutely unanimous. It didn't matter where we were in the, in the whether we were in Perth or in Brisbane or we were in Mackay or in Geelong, everywhere around the country we went, and we did a huge number of these groups, the answers were the three things that women wanted the government to do something about, childcare, women's health, and domestic violence. Absolutely unequivocal. So that to me, that was okay. This is what we have to do. This this was. We, we, I, I thought we you know the only way to change women's view of the government and of Keating was to do it with policy. You know, not with gimmicks and not with you know soft women's weekly portraits at all. I mean, we did all that too. But but you know, the the main thing was to do to develop policies um, that address those three issues. A very radical approach, you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was obvious myself, but um, of, often, you know, I think this has happened to me, you say, I do, I've done lots of different things in my life, and I have, but, you know, usually I, what I end up doing is obvious, yeah. and it always staggers me why no one, why everyone doesn't do it. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was very effective. And the other thing, you know, this is, there are a lot of little small things you can do in government, and particularly when you're working in the Prime Minister's office. You know, with the thing about women's health, and the, the researcher, who's a very, very astute woman, and she's very good at hearing not just what people say, but what's just below, beneath the surface of what they're saying. And obviously, childcare and domestic violence are very clear-cut issues that, you know, government could, could, well, not easily do something about, but they were tangible. 
the women's health issue she thought was really women expressing or not quite expressing, but, but what they really wanted to say was that they wanted some me time, they, wanted, they, were, they were frustrated and sick of being, you know, pulled up on so many different directions, you know, having to do work, work in the workforce and come home and work again at home and husbands never helped and, you know, all that sort of thing. That it was all about um, being treated with some respect. And so, you know, I just tried to ensure that with all of Keating's major speeches, there was, you know, that women were mentioned and that they were acknowledged and thanked. And you might remember on election night, um, just before Paul ran out on the stage to claim the sweetest victory of all, I said to him, don't forget to thank the Sheilas. <laughs> and he, he did, he said, I want to thank the women of Australia. And it was just fantastic. It's simple, I mean, just acknowledge people Treat them with respect, um, thank them where it's appropriate, and well, it's, it's not hard. There's a, a very moving passage in the book. This is not a question, it's just a, a comment from me, that you, you describe the, the Arts for Labour Night, which was mm -hmm. um, before the election, because... Afternoon, Sunday there, afternoon. It was an afternoon, mm. I think, where in, in Enmore, was it? It was in the Enmore Theatre in Sydney? So no, it was at the State Theatre in Sydney. State Theatre in Sydney. Yeah, the, Street. And basically a whole lot of artists and, and players and, and theatre people and everything like that put on this evening for, for Paul Keating to say thank you for what he had done for the arts. And in that context, you talk about this thing that he had set up where he'd been giving fellowships to various writers and, and playwrights and film writers, people like that where they could work for two years, the government mm. would support them to do it, and, and they became called Keatings mm. after a while. And it's... Uh, People remember the Keatings? Yeah. yeah. Mm. I just... Um, that description you gave, really, I, I found myself kind of tearing up while I, was, mm. while I was reading it, because it was so extraordinary to read about a government that had given a damn about the arts and about culture in many ways. But it had this funny little coda at the end of it because um, you say at the end here that uh, the amount he actually gave for the Keatings was in total was about $11.5 million. And you compare that to the, I'm glad you're telling the, the, the campaign that had, um, that had been launched around the same time under the rubric of where the bloody hell are you, which had cost the Australian taxpayer... And guess who created that? <laughs> who? Morrison, Morrison, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. $180 million for that. So, you know, you... <laughs> Didn't help with tourism, but, you know, that $11.7 million or whatever that, that was spent on the Keatings, I mean, the, 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 the work that, got, that was produced um, by the artists, I um, mean, Neil Armfield. Yes. Uh, Cloud Street. You know, the production of Cloud Street, the most successful theatrical production, I think, ever in this country, or certainly until that point. Um, Frank Morehouse wrote the, you know, the incredible Edith tri trilogy. Um, I can't even remember them all now, but, you know, there was just phenomenal work done, because what the Keatings were, well, they were called the Creative Fellowships, but what they were, they were for mid-career artists, so people who were already established in their field who... But, you know, as we all know, artists, very few artists in this country make much money, make any money. And by giving them this two-year fellowship, and it was quite a high amount of money, um, it gave them the space to be able to, to work and to be creative. And it was the most phenomenally productive program. And it cost bugger all. And, of course, you know, second John Howard got in, <coughs> gone. Um, and that money, the, where the bloody hell are you ad, which I thought was just so, you know, disgusting. I mean, is that the sort of country we are? Girl in a bikini on a beach. And it didn't work. No. I could have told them that. Don't, it didn't work. So what a waste of money. There was a, another amusing uh, little passage I found there in the book, which was a description of when you first became the head of the Office of Status of Women. The acronym was not actually the Office of Status of Women, was it? Well, when I was... My first day, I think, in the office, uh, I was being uh, give, given my induction into the Prime Minister's Department, which is where the office had been um, moved to by the, by the Hawke government. 
and I was being shown the org chart for the department and all of the you know divisions that they all had like a little three letter um, acronym like for example the cabinet office was CAB and you know international division was INT and whatever and whatever whatever and then he said oh and there you are and there it was SOW. <laughs> Uh-uh. No, thank you. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, you know, day one, they had to win that one. So it got changed to OSW. <laughs> because it was, yeah, status. Um, I mean, in that context, it, it, it might be interesting to discuss... You can't it. make this stuff up. <laughs> really. I mean, really. <laughs> really. <laughs> in, in your first autobiography, in, in Ducks on a Pond, one of the things you talk about is your growing awareness during that period. I mean, if I might just say to the audience, these, both these books, Ducks in a Pond is pretty hard to come by, but Unfettered and Alive is over there. It's a really great read. I didn't want it to end. I didn't want to put it down. It was just, I mean, this is a, a, an autobiography which just grips you. It's so interesting. And there is this very strong narrative pool throughout it. So treat yourself to a copy of it if Thank you, you can. Um, but in Ducks in a Pond and... You talk about this, this, it's not a given that women are treated unfairly when you're a young woman. In fact, you don't even think about it terribly much yourself until you get to Sydney University and you start being made aware. At the time, you're much more politically involved in the push and various other different things. But it's this sudden kind of a growing awareness that there is this deep inequality mm. in society. Well, I'd actually um, first encountered it when I was still in Adelaide and I um, applied for a job at the ABC. Uh, I was at uni, but I had to, you know, I was, for various reasons, was, was, was looking for a job because I needed some money. And so I applied for a job as a specialist trainee. And in those days, they, you know, used to advertise these jobs in the, in the newspaper and they used to publish the salary scales and of course, in those days, the jobs and salaries were men and boys and women and girls. And the salary scale that was published in this job advertisement showed that the rate of pay for a boy who had just left high school was higher than for a woman with a degree. And that was legal, that was the norm. And that was, you know, I was at university, I didn't, you know, everything seemed to be fine. I didn't um, have any notion that, that, that we were unequal or there was anything, um, you know, I just hadn't even thought about it because I hadn't experienced, and that, so this was very confronting to see this. And you know, I got very angry about it. And after that, you know, we started really looking at society and, and realising that it was legal to pay women 59% of the male wage you know, that it was legal to discriminate against women, to advertise certain jobs as only being for men and boys, and women couldn't even apply for them. It was, you know, legal up until 1966, and women had to, to, be, uh, to resign from permanent employment in banks and teaching and the public service, not because they were pregnant, but just because they got married. So they lost all their, you know, entitlements and super and everything. And, I mean, this, this was the way things were then. It was terrible. And do you think that kind of... the uh, to me, what's interesting as a reader is, the, is your kind of growing awareness and the way that you talk mm. about it, the frankness with which you talk about it. And I just wondered whether that experience for you has helped you be such a, a, a strong promoter of equality for women, whether, whether you know, the fact that you grew into that awareness yourself. Mm. Well, I think I've always had a, a very strong sense of... Um, I guess you, you know, these days we call it social justice, but I mean, I've, very, you know, I've always had a strong sense of when I see something which is patently unfair, as, I, as this was, is that women being treated uh, so unfairly, so differently, uh, to me that was you know, an obvious injustice that needed to be addressed. And the fact that I had a personal interest in it because I was a woman just kind of was pretty motivating. Yeah. And, and so what, what we see is that kind of through the Hawke years and the Keating years, you get this kind of growth of, of equality, really. There are these mm. statutes that come in. And then in, in 1997, Keating loses the election to, to John Howard. And um, you don't have a lot of nice things to say about John Howard. I have no nice things to say about him. None. <laughs> None. 
and I, I know we don't want to get into this, but you know, very interesting the way certain action of his on Friday is being received by the Australian people. Yeah. I mean, uh, you talk particularly, when you're talking about Howard, you talk about that date. You've got this kind of particular date that, you know, that you have mm -hmm. the 22nd of September 1996, mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. when, when, when he talked about... Um, the pall of censorship has been lifted. Yeah. People, I don't have the actual... I, I mean, I've got, got I think, I, I think I've got the word. People could speak freely about what they feel without living in fear of being branded a racist or a bigot. Now, he said that in response to Pauline Hanson's maiden speech where she said she was not going to represent the Aboriginal people in her electorate and that she thought that we should have end migration. Yeah. So there was a Prime Minister of the country commenting on a, a bigoted set of remarks by a person who'd actually been expelled from the Liberal Party for her bigotry. Here's the Liberal Party Prime Minister addressing a Liberal Party conference in Brisbane saying the pall of censorship has been lifted and we can now say what we like. And that, I say, you know, remember that day, because that is the day Australia changed. Yeah. That is the day the genie was let out of the bottle and we have never, ever been able to get it back in. Yeah. I mean, before that, I mean, I also tell another story about... I was in Bankstown one day with Keating when I was still working for him and we were walking, you know, because it was in his electorate, and we were walking down the street and... Um, you know, some, some, one of the, some bloke came up to him and said, oh, Paul, you know, everyone calls him Paul. Paul, you know, look at all those shops with a bloody Chinese writing on them and, you know, it's, oh, what's happening to this country? And the way Keating handled that was just so, well, mate, you know, things are changing and it's okay and, you know, and he kind of, you know, he didn't repudiate the man, but he just said, well, you know, he tried to broaden the man's response and understanding to a situation that this man clearly felt was, yeah. you know, challenging and unsettling. Uh, he didn't understand what was happening to his, his, you know, his suburb. And I just contrasted Keating's way of handling it with Howard's way of handling it. And Keating's way was to not give permission to, to bigotry and to racism and to hatred. Whereas Howard's way was not only to give permission, but to encourage it. Yeah. And around this time, around the time of Howard after you left, you became the editor of Good Weekend magazine. Mm. And you yourself discovered, I mean, during that editorship, you discovered this, this need that the Australian culture seemed to have, which I think probably dates... Well, it's probably been there for a long time, but I think it was encouraged during the Howard years as well to take down any powerful women in the society. Mm. Well, in my, I've got a, a chapter in this book called The Getting of Anger, and it's the chapter in which I um, describe my own uh, growing um, anger uh, when, as, I, as I understood what John Howard did. And I've written also, I've read another book called The End of Equality in 2003, where I document it in great detail. Um, but I just wanted to sort of bring it back into this book into a more personal context to say, because what he did as Prime Minister, you know, you might remember the white picket fence philosophy. I mean, he basically wanted women out of the workforce, mothers in particular, out of the workforce and at home. And, uh, you know, it's a very long story and a lot of policies involved, but just a couple of key ones. You remember the, the baby bonus? Yeah, it ended up being something like $5,000 to have a baby. That's a lot of money for, you know, a lot of people. And it was very effective. The birth rate went up quite a lot as a result of it. You remember Peter Costello urging everyone, one for the mother, one for the father and one for the country? Three children. Um, Howard also, he changed taxation policy, he changed uh, welfare policy, he changed all the policies so that it became financially disadvantageous for mothers to work. There was a financial penalty introduced for women who wanted to work. And I just thought that was unconscionable. Yeah. And, you know, and some of those changes... And, and this was basically ripping up all of the work... That I, you know, I took some of it very personally because I had helped create some of it, um, particularly the childcare rebate, which was one of the Keating's biggest reforms, and Howard ripped that up. But I just felt, um, you know, how dare this man come and, and impose his personal morality on an entire country? And we knew, we, I mean, this wasn't 
we hadn't done this because Anne Summers thought women should work, women should do this. We had done very extensive research where women themselves had said what they wanted. And we had respected that. Yeah. And we had tried to enable that through, through policy. And that's what government should do, in my opinion. You know, enlarge the possibilities and the welfare of the population along the lines that people want. Not have somebody come in and impose their own personal morality, be it religious. I mean, the other big thing, remember Tony Abbott, in 2005, there was this um, four, four party, uh, four women from, from different parties in the Senate, um, Fiona Nash from the Nationals, uh, Judith Troth from the Liberals, Claire Moore from Labor, and uh, Lynn Allison from the Democrats. They got together and got a motion going to remove from the power of the Minister for Health, who happened to be, guess who, uh, the power to restrict the import into Australia of RU486, we know, which is the non-surgical uh, alternative to abortion. Tony Abbott was, you know, for religious reasons, was denying this drug to be imported into Australia. So it took these women, you know, for a, a, a multi-party uh, effort by women, and they, you know, it was a very contentious thing at the time. Some of you probably remember it, but it it did pass the parliament. And so the, the, this power to regulate the import of RU486 was taken away from the minister and given to the Therapeutic Goods Administration, you know, which is a, a bureaucratic body that doesn't have a political or religious agenda, and that's the way it should be. Mm. So, I mean, this is in the chapter Getting of Anger, but your personal anger was in many ways inspired by the, the attacks on you when you were the editor of Good Weekend as well. Mm. There was a really sharply personal attacks on you, which you later th saw the same thing happening to Julia Gillard, didn't you? Mm. Mm. What happened to Julia Gillard was far, far worse. Um, it was truly shocking. I mean, the, the, what, how I interpreted what happened with her, and you know, some of you might remember, I you know, was one of the few people to sort of document that uh, in, in my journalism, and wrote a book called The Misogyny Factor, where I talked about it too. But you know, it, it just seemed to me that Julia Gillard, who was this incredibly popular politician when she was Deputy Prime Minister, but the minute she became Prime Minister, and after the initial euphoria, for, for, which only lasted seemingly for you know, a few weeks or a few months, they, people then just turned on her in a way that was so, um, first of all, puzzling and then disgusting because uh, so much of it was sexualised. And it wasn't saying, well, you know, she's a bad prime minister, we don't like this policy or we don't like you know, her political style or we don't like the way she runs question time. It wasn't any of that. It was, you know, her bum's too big, you know, her jackets don't fit. Um, there's, um, you know, all this sexual innuendo. The ABC actually made a, you know, comedy series that showed her, you know, having sex with her boyfriend wrapped in an Australian flag. I mean, things that would never happen with a male prime minister. And, um, you know, and she called it out with her famous sexism and misogyny speech, which was an extraordinarily powerful rejoinder. But one of the things that I did was, because um, I discovered, you know, almost by accident that the, the obnoxious Larry Pickering, um, who was a political cartoonist who used to work for The Australian but was, was now, you know, self-employed, he was drawing these truly disgusting uh, cartoons of Julia Gillard carrying a giant dildo, because obviously you couldn't be a prime minister if you didn't have a dick, carrying this giant dildo. And he used to do these cartoons every day, and he sent copies of them to every single member of federal parliament. And not one of them said a thing. Not one of them. And when I found out about it, I you know, called a few MPs and said, do you get these things? And they, oh, yeah, yeah, we just delete them. You know, we just delete them. And I said, no one in the press gallery had bothered to write about it. And so when I exposed this, and, and, and it, you know, people said, oh, that's, that's horrible, mm, that's disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yes. But why was it that it was allowed to go on without the parliamentary press gallery, not, first of all, knowing about it, and secondly, condemning it? The same parliamentary press gallery who, when Julia Gillard gave her sexism and misogyny speech, said, oh, she's overreacted, she's over the top, it was a pathetic speech. <laughs> 
you know, so, so close to the bubble that they completely missed the point. I mean, I, I wonder how you think that's come about, how we've allowed such open misogyny to... Or has it always been there? Is it something, some part of the Australian character? Or is it some part of our history as, as, a, as a civilization that we have this, this uh, resentment of women as they come into, uh, come into their power? Is that...? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a really good question because I don't think we really know what, 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 the way I interpreted the Gillard situation at the time, and I still think this is true, but we had never had a woman... We'd, we'd had two women premiers, I think maybe three women premiers, Anna Bly was premier of the state at the time. We'd, sorry? Yeah, we'd had Carmen Lawrence and Joan Kennedy. We'd had state premiers, and, and all of them had, had been given a very, very hard time. Um, and this was the first time we'd had a woman running the whole country, the first woman prime minister. You remember Quentin Bryce was Governor-General at the time, and then, you know, the, this fantastic day when the first female Governor-General swore in the first female prime minister, and wow, this is great. Yeah. Um, but then something, something happened, and I, I really think that um, a lot of Australians, at the end of the day, couldn't cope with the idea of a woman in power, in charge. And, you know, the excuse... I often used to think, well, I wonder if, if Quentin Bryce had been the first female Prime Minister, you know, because Quentin had five kids, Julia, you know, was deliberately barren. Um, <laughs> Quentin was, you know, was a Methodist. Um, Julia was an atheist. Um, you know, Quentin came from a conservative area of this big state of Queensland. Julie was a migrant. Um, you know, there are all these things. So I just wonder if, if it had been a different woman, would the reaction have been different? Now, of course, we don't know. It's just too hypothetical to know. But probably not. I think, cause I think the basic um, problem was that we, we, we have a big problem in this country accepting women in any role other than as mothers. So we said, you know, we'll let them have a little job on the side, maybe, but not, 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 too, not too big a job, not, to, not running the country. And one of the things I think is very interesting in the United States at the moment, you know, there are now six women candidates. You mentioned Kamala Harris. There are six women running for the Democratic nomination. So I think this is going to be quite a big challenge for the sexists out there. Because they had sexism and misogyny. You know, what was done with Hillary Clinton, which a lot of which was imported straight from America here and applied to Julia Gillard. I mean, some of the cartoons and everything were actually identical. Um, when there's six women, it's going to be a little bit more tricky, I think, because, you know, it's, um, Elizabeth Warren, she's got kids. Kamala Harris doesn't. Um, um, what's her name? Um, Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, from New York, she's this and she's that. So, you know, then there's Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, or she's a bad boss, apparently. Uh, I mean, there's, it's interesting to, to watch how this is going to play out and whether or not having so many women running is going to change things. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that it does. To have, like, a critical mass of candidates is something we've never, ever had before. It's going to be really fascinating. I mean, we... we we're talking over lunch about about Trump, and you expressed the opinion that you didn't think that Trump was ever was going to stand in 2020. You didn't think he would get there, but uh, the the thing I didn't say at lunch was that you know the terrifying prospect of Pence taking over as mm. vice president um, there mm. also, and how that might tip the scales and things like that. Do you? Uh, but please, you know, allow yourself to speak about Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to talk about Trump? <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, as someone was, was it you saying to me before, what's it like living in, because I live in New York at the moment, you know, what's it like living in Trump land? Well, it's actually, it's exhausting. Because, you know, every day there is a scandal or three of a magnitude that, you know, once would have been sufficient to pull down the president. And now it's just like, you know, the capacity for shock and outrage is kind of being progressively 
that kind of weakens so much because every, every day there is a major scandal and a major revelation about the extraordinary corruption of this, this man who's currently in the White House. Now, I agree with you that, that Pence is, 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 is um, a far more dangerous uh, person in many ways. So, I mean, I, I think the way I hope it plays out is that, you know, Trump gets to the end of this term, goes to jail. Um, <laughs> we have an election. Uh, I, I still haven't decided which of the women I want to win, but one of them. And um, there'll be a new democratic president, preferably female, and America can start to re recover from this terrible, terrible period. That's what I'm hoping. And I mean, people say, well, Trump's so clever or anything, his base is you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, the points that I would make are, one, the noose is closing around him. I mean, the number of investigations that are um, being conducted by both federal authorities, congressional authorities and New York state authorities um, are massive and uh, I, think, I think the likelihood is not that he'll be um, impeached, I think, and I don't think that the Mueller uh, stuff on collusion is necessarily going to be what tips the balance. I think uh, the testimony this week by Michael Cohen is just absolutely fantastic because we've now got him on toast for financial crimes. And it's going to be a bit like Al Capone. You know, they couldn't get him on the, the crime, but they got him on tax avoidance. <laughs> so maybe we just get Trump on, you know, bank fraud. And that'll be a New York State um, offence, so no presidential pardon for him. And uh, off he goes to jail. Hopefully November next year. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm looking at the time here. I'm wondering oh. if, if maybe we should go to questions from the audience. For, sure. For, I'm sure there's lots of people who'd like to ask you things here. So um, yeah. um, we've got a, we, we're recording this for a podcast, so we've got a roving mic. So if you could just wait for the mic to come to you. Can I see any hands? I can see one just here in, uh, on, to my, in the row to right. And uh, I'll just see another one for the next question. Yes, this one in the front here as well. Okay, thank you. Hi, um, thanks very much for your insights. Um, would you consider running for office at all? <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the, I'm, I'm doing the speech that I'm putting together for the National Press Club on uh, Wednesday um, about women's political representation. One of the points I'm making en passant um, is mentioning Nancy Pelosi, who's the... Um, new Speaker of the House of Representatives, and she's the, um, only the first woman ever to be Speaker, and she's the first woman ever to be Speaker twice, um, and she's the first person since Sam Rayburn in 1977 to be Speaker twice. And there was a big campaign against her at the time of the midterm elections within her own party, saying, well, she shouldn't be you know, allowed to stay as party leader and become the Speaker because she's too old. Uh, she's 78. And, you know, that's old in Australian political terms. And I did some research and I found the oldest person in the Australian Parliament was born in 1944. The oldest person in the US Congress was born in 1933. Now, 25% of the US Congress is aged over 70, and 8% is aged over 80. What unheard of here. Until Ita Buttrose got the ABC job the other day. <laughs> At 77. But the thing I was going to say, I mean, I was going to, it's a bit late for me to get started in electoral office. However, um, among the many interesting results of the midterm elections in the United States, as we all know about AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the youngest woman ever, elect, ever elected to Congress, 29 years of age, and she is such a political star. Uh, but th that very same election also produced the oldest woman ever elected to Congress, and that's Donna Shalala, who used to be a cabinet member in Bill Clinton's administration. She was ele uh, elected to a seat in Florida in, in November last year, and she's aged 77. So, you know, it's a time for older women. Uh, but not me. I'm not going <laughs> to... 
I've got plenty of things that I'm going to be doing. I'm certainly not um, hanging out my boots, but I don't see elected office as something for me. Hi, Anne. Thanks for coming to Mulaney. Yeah, pleasure. I, I actually wanted to ask you your thoughts on the appointment of Ida Butros as chair of the ABC and what you'd like to see her achieve and also whether you whether you caught Q&A with Jordan Peterson last week at all. Um, he just made a comment about how he believes women are being lied to uh, and sold a um, an idea that it's great to go out and get a job um, and it's not so great to stay at home and be a mother. Um, so I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on Well, I, I have never heard of this person. I, you know, I, re I read the Australian press from New York every day. I read all the papers. And I saw this fuss about this person on Q&A and I had to sort of Google him and say, who in the hell is he? Because I had never heard of him. And having Googled him, I have no interest in learning any more about him. And um, I don't care what he says. I have no... I don't care. It's irrelevant because, you know, the march of history goes on and he can say what he likes. He's not going to change anything. Um, as for Aisha, well, you know, I thought it was... It's, it's, it was um, you know, there's been a lot of criticism about the process, the fact that... Um, the, the, the non-partisan process or non-political process was, was ignored yet again. Uh, though I think a lot of people feel, and I tend to agree with them, that the process... It's pretty shocking that with three women who on that selection committee didn't produce a single woman in their recommendations. I think that's pretty... sus uh, and disappointing. Um, so for once, you know, I kind of approve of, of something that Scott Morrison's done in saying, you know, there must, must be a woman in that job. And Ida was kind of out of a left field, but when you think about it, she's got immense media experience. Yeah. Now, she, now, she might not be across all the ins and outs of digital strategy, uh, but she's got, she knows the media inside out, she knows journalism inside out. We haven't had a head of the ABC who was an actual journalist in a very long time. And I think that's important. She, she will be a champion of the ABC. She won't be dictated to by, by governments, Liberal or Labor. Um, and the ABC has lacked that kind of... You know, I think David Hill was the last passionate advocate running the ABC, and, and I think we really need somebody like that again. I think she'll do that. So I think it's great. You didn't think about doing it yourself? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got... I got other things I want to do. <laughs> oh, Anne, I wanted to ask what you felt about the impact of the Me Too movement on feminism today. Please. Sorry, on, could you on, repeat that again? Me Too movement on... The impact of the Me, Me Too movement mm -hmm. on feminism today. Right. Well, it's a very um, complex issue, I think, and, and the... Um, I think the outcomes, or the you know, it's it's still a very very evolving um, situation. But in the, you know, it's only I think the the, the stories that you know the, the Harvey Weinstein stories broke in October 2017. So it's just 15 months old. This this story. The impact in the, in the United States has been far far greater than here. And I, I actually wrote an article for the Financial Review magazine a few months ago uh, about the, the whole Me Too movement. And in that, I published a list, I think it was of 130 men, very high-profile men in the United States who have lost their jobs as a result of credible accusations uh, in the Me Too context. Now, you couldn't write a similar article here because uh, although there have been some high-profile cases and there have been some um, accusations, it hasn't got, had the same traction here. And everybody says it's because of the defamation laws, and um, I guess that's, that's a big part of it. Um, so I think uh, we need to find other ways in Australia to try to harness the, the spirit of, of Me Too, and the spirit is you know, the previously ignored or overlooked complaints or women, women behaviour, shocking behaviour towards women and men, but, but mostly women, particularly in the workplace, 
um, ha there's been no outlet, no avenue for which those can be, uh, stories can be broadcast and accepted and there'd be consequences for the, the men who've, who've acted like this. So I think we're still kind of sorting it out here, but I think it's had a very profound impact in the United States, very profound. I think it's having some... Im I mean, I was actually... Uh, this is quite funny. I just last week before I left New York, I was actually having lunch at a little pizza bar, uh, uh, pasta bar and uh, by myself because I was having a quick lunch. I was running between errands. And the guys who were behind the counter, three men, they were kind of making stuff were talking about how they had to go to their sexual harassment class that afternoon. <laughs> and they were like... Do, do men have to be taught how to do it? <laughs> I, think, I don't think that's the idea. <laughs> so, you know, there are, there are huge changes happening in employment. And I think even here it's happening. I've heard some very interesting stories about, you know, because there's been some well-known accusations made in the theatrical world here, that the um, theatre companies here, they now have protocols of, of um, the way in which people behave with each other and, you know, there, there, is, there is instructions uh, given by stage managers and so on about addressing all of this stuff. So it's an ongoing story and I think it has a very long way to go. Yes, and I'm really fascinated by the work that you did with Paul Keating, a, a man of great vision, and I really respect what he did for the arts as well as for women. Um, but I'm exceedingly um, exasperated, really, with the way our politics is going at the moment because the concept of policy seems to be lacking in, with both parties. Um, I wonder how you think we can influence um, the leaders that are in, in government and in um, the opposition, for example, Tanya Plivisek, to encourage the concept of really clear policy coming out um, in this election campaign that's... You, any particular area of policy? Um, well, particularly about, I suppose, the role of women, but for me, arts is really important and it's what keeps our country going and it underpins us. And I think it's something that's been very left behind. Mm. And I wonder if you have any advice to us as, as to how we might be able to best influence um, the policy shapers mm. for this next election. Well, I mean, it is very disappointing that Labor hasn't um, had anything to say, as far as I know. I mean, I'm, I'm not living here at the moment. I can't pretend you know, that I know every single thing that's happening. Uh, but I'm certainly not aware of an arts policy. And I, I, but I you know, like to hope there might be one. Um, I mean, that speech that Keating gave that night, and I, I quote from it in the book, that, at the, that afternoon, the Arts for Labor, where he talked about the importance of arts for the economy and how he talked about even when they were doing budget cuts, he made sure that the arts was always protected be excuse me, because the arts is so integral to us uh, figuring out who we are and expressing who we are and that he understood that and that's why he created the creative fellowships when he was treasurer. And we haven't had a politician since him who even understands that, let alone, you know, argues it. And, I, you know, I just don't know how we, we, we get people, you know, the, the, the sort of people we have in Parliament, by and large, are more narrow-minded than I think perhaps used to be the case. And not everybody, of course, but we just don't have the big, expansive thinkers that we used to have. And, I mean, the, all we can do is, as, as citizens is to say, well, you know, we want this, we demand this. I mean, at least try and get the conversation going and try and um, make, make sufficient noise that they have to respond. I mean, I think there's absolutely zero chance that Libs will do anything, zero. Um, but I don't think Labor's a lost cause, but maybe they just... I don't even know who the arts minister, shadow arts minister is, do you? No, I mean, I presume they have one, but I'm not sure who it is. But I'm sorry, that's not a very good answer, but that's all I can... Mm. Well, 
Hello. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to be on a platform with you up here on the Sunshine Coast in 1983 when I was a new member for the Queensland Parliament for the Labour Party. And I, <laughs> I, um, I just wanted to... I, I, I just wanted to say um, one of the things that you haven't taken um, credit for, which I think you'll probably uh, is due to you, is the role that you may have played uh, with Paul Keating when he supported the introduction of affirmative action in the night. What, what year was it? 93. 94, 93. I think. 94. <laughs> 94. Well, I didn't actually have a role in that. Oh, no. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that was the Labour Party women. I'm not a member of the Labour Party and, you know, haven't been, so... No, 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 no. but he, he promoted it in the National Executive meeting, but yeah. we presumed it was because you'd been no. talking to him about the no. role. No, well, that's that, a shame no. because Sorry. now in Queensland we have a Labour Premier, a Labour Deputy Premier... A, um, and a woman um, attorney general. So if you didn't, um, thank you very much for the influence that you did have. <laughs> I mean, on. I think the women in the Labor Party deserve a lot of credit for this. I mean, there are huge numbers of women in the party who, you know, Joan Kerner, for example, and uh, I'm, I'm struggling to think of the name. I think Jenny George um, had some influence, but I'm, I'm struggling to remember the names now because it's, it is you know, 25 years ago. Uh, but it was the women in the Labor Party, and particularly Emily's List women, that they fought for it. And it wasn't exactly popular at the time. I mean, everyone says, oh, Labor's great. But they, this has been very hard fought, and it's paying off now. They're, almost, they're probably going to hit 50% women at the next election. It's taken 25 years to get there. But, I mean, it was... I mean, I think, you know, the only credit I'd take with Keating is that we got him sort of engaged in the subject of women, but he hadn't been before, and so maybe to that extent, you know, he might have been more receptive than perhaps if he, you know, hadn't been prime minister and hadn't had, you know, the policy exposure. You know, we had we, we he had a lot of policy exposure on things like childcare, women's economic participation. You know, I mean, I think that, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is to me one of the, the most thing I was most proud of, or one of the things I was most proud of when I worked for Keating was getting him to announce the new childcare policy as part of his economic statement rather than as part of his women's statement. And when he sort of made that point at the, you know, when he did the women's policy launch at the Bankstown Town Hall, and he said, you know, I could have announced this today, but I thought it needed to be in the economic policy statement because it is such a key economic issue. The crowd went wild. They understood the importance of that. But the Herald, the, the newspapers beat us to death and said, you know, middle class welfare, what's that doing in the economic policy? It's really, anyway, I, I can go on forever about that. <laughs> but he was, he was, you know, very receptive to thinking about these issues, so therefore I think he would have understood the, if you like, the justice angle to it. We've and his support also was critical, because if it hadn't been supported by the Prime Minister, it may not have got up. Um, yeah. I, I'd like to um, um, contrast Australia's progress as far as misogyny is concerned with what's happened in Irish society. I was in Dublin in 74-5. I was not, as a medical practitioner, allowed to sign a lease on our flat that we rented because I was female. And what year? 74-75. Mm -hmm. um, yet they have made such amazing strides while mm -hmm. we have still... I've, I've, I've seen people refused surgical training because they were female as a, as a general policy, whereas in Britain, I was working with senior registrars in neurosurgery that were fem female. Mm. And I just feel as if either the Catholic Church has, in the, in the politicians from the Catholic Church, either they kept us back. I mean, we'd rather believe a mother murders her baby than a dingo took it. We say to a, a, a deputy prime minister, great shoes when she leaves. You know, we really haven't progressed. Is our isolation on this side of the world part of what's going on? Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I, do, I also tell the story in the book, 1978, 
I was the uh, Bureau Chief of the Australian Financial Review in Canberra, earning $30,000 a year, which was a lot of money then. I had no dependents, no debts, I had a company car, I had an expense account, a lot of money. I could not borrow to buy a house because I was a woman. Even though I had a letter from the Max Walsh, managing editor of the Financial Review, saying this is her income, blah, blah, blah. Nope. So I needed to get a male guarantor to be able to get the money to buy a house. So I think, as you say in the book, it, it, it wasn't that you needed a guarantor, you just needed a man. <laughs> no, he had the male guarantor. He didn't have to produce income, proof of income, he just had to be male. Yes. But to your bigger point, um, I think the uh, role of the Catholic Church, certainly in Ireland, but, but in Australia, is something that's very relevant. Um, the influence of the Catholic Church in Australian politics, particularly at the moment, is phenomenal. And it used to be the influence of the Catholic Church went through the Labor Party, now it goes through the Liberals much more than, or as much as. The Catholic Church has been very successful at infiltrating Australian politics and um, curbing reforms, I think. And I think that's a subject that could do with a lot more, you know, elucidation and a lot more, um, we need to know a lot more about the, the, the dead hand of the church and how they have um, impeded things for women. Um, so I don't know whether it's our geographical isolation. I don't know. I mean, there, it, there is so many factors, but there are other factors where we're, you know, terrific. So it, it's, it's really hard to come up with easy generalisations about this. Um, it's something I think about a lot, I write about a lot, and there's no easy answer. Sorry. We've got a long way, long way to go, but we've also done a lot. I mean, life, life for women now, compared with when I left school, night and day. So my question is, what do you think it will take to get women in other areas of, of the political spectrum um, and the, the political right to break that nexus of being in this space where there seems to be the opposite of everything else that is being put before them in terms of policy, decision making, and all of those other areas uh, that are affecting us very strongly here in Australia. Well, I'm giving a 40 minute speech next Wednesday on this very topic. <laughs> so I don't want to scoop myself because I'll, I'll get into trouble from the press club. Um, all I will say is that um, it is my very strong view that the right-wing parties, the Liberal Party and the Republican Party, do not want women in their ranks. So there's no, the question doesn't stand, what can women do? They're not wanted. And I think that those parties are destroying themselves and will not be around much longer. Yeah, yeah. So, speaking of agents of change, um, it's been my great privilege to speak to you, Anne Summers. You've been a, a great agent of change throughout your whole life in Australia, and thank you so much for coming to Mulaney and speaking to us all. Pleasure. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Please put your thank hands you. together. Thank you. Thank you.